the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Saturday morning, everybody. Good morning again. Special thanks to Lou Gonzalez. Saturday morning, December the 9th, 2023. The weather, Saturday weather, 35 will be the high. 15 tonight, 48 on Sunday, 25 Sunday night, and back to work Monday. 52 degrees. Without further ado, he is the man. Please say good morning and welcome back. One of my dearest friends, and he has done tremendous radio. Sandy Clough joins us. And we were hoping to get Joe. Joe's, Joe's busy. He's got family stuff this morning. So Joe can't be with us to team it up, but we don't need it. We just got Sandy. Sandy, good morning. <laughs> we don't need Joe. We Holy. always need Joe. No, I know we do. No. God, I'll, Joe's my guy. Love him. But good morning. Thank you for doing this, and welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Always a pleasure. Um, this year started out with Deion Sanders and the Colorado football. To get ready for the show today, to be at least semi-conscious, you know that they brought a hundred and thirteen million dollar economic boost into Boulder. Begin there. So, what is the twenty three football season under Coach Coach Prime? What is it now all about? Well, that's a big part of what it's all about, and I think I remember uh, saying uh, a few months back when I was on with Joe, and, and obviously with you. That, that, regardless of the one-loss record, would remain undeniable. Uh, the economic impact on Boulder, uh, the uh, game day feeling, which had never existed before, even during their national championship season and their best years in the late 80s, uh, early to mid-1990s, it, 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 they never sold out every home game. They did this year. And they'll probably sell out every home game next year, too. So that impact is undeniable and is immune to any fluctuations in the one lost record. Uh, competitively, uh, I think they got a little bit carried away with a 3-0 and start. And, of course, as we all know by now, uh, lost uh, eight of their last nine games, uh, crash-landed competitively, but the the impact remained. And it's a story of uh, economic transformation, Peter, <laughs> no, no. Uh, if nothing else. It is amazing. I mean, the, this estimated number, $113 million to Boulder. I mean, to Boulder yeah. alone. I mean, that's, that's, that you, that you can't look at that and say, gee, that was a failure. No, no. And I think... All of us, when uh, we comment, uh, as I do on a uh, daily basis, uh, we, we do sometimes, <laughs> hopefully not too often, no, lose sight of the forest for the trees. And, and we're into analyzing why they win and why they lose. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mistakes, uh, I think even he might acknowledge uh, that he made during the course of the season, some things he said that probably should have gone uh, unsaid, uh, at least for public consumption. Uh, but 
the big picture remains the big picture. And it's it's the reason why uh, if if there's any good news uh, on the recruiting front, it deservedly uh, gets a lot of praise. And they signed a five star offensive tackle this week that uh, turned out to be someone who did not even list Colorado among his list of finalists. He was the last, uh, the the final uncommitted five-star prospect in the class of 2024. And he could have gone to Ohio State, Alabama, Tennessee, or Oregon, among others, and he chose Boulder. And that that is a major December win. Uh, December has been a pretty good month uh, for Deion Sanders. October and November weren't so great this year, but December has been a pretty good month for him. Is he the same guy that started out uh, when this all began? Is he the same guy this morning, or has he been in a transition? Great question. Yeah. Great question. I see some signs that he has toned down some of the rhetoric uh as far as I know, since uh, this signing of offensive tackle Jordan Seaton, uh, he has not come out and boasted about how his school beat out a number of other top programs uh, for this player. Um, I think right now he's better off letting the news sort of speak for itself without trying to embellish mm-hmm. it or, or enhance it. Um you know, the, 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 Travis Hunter's coming back next year. Shador Sanders is coming back next year. They've got a five-star offensive tackle prospect. They have a wonderful set of receivers. They have a running back who basically didn't play this year, uh, who will be healthy next year and figures to be the starting running back. So offensively, things look very promising. I'm not crazy about Pat Shermer as offensive coordinator, but he and Deion Sanders are close. Uh, Sean Lewis moving on to become the head coach at San Diego State. Uh, they've made, I think, some pretty good hires uh, to replace some of the assistant coaches they lost. Um, but um, I, I, I do wonder, Pat Shermer, of course, was the offensive coordinator uh, with the Denver Broncos under Vic Fangio for a few seasons and uh, never has had a record of great accomplishment, either as an offensive coordinator or a head coach in the NFL or major college football. Uh, but uh, amid all the good news, uh, that's kind of a sidelight story. Sandy Clough, Peter Boyle, 710 KNUS, again, prepping for it. Every Colorado, you mentioned this, every game at Folsom in 2023 was sold out, an yep. average of more than 53,000 people. The economic impact of those six home games, people estimate it to $21.6 million alone. Sandy, that's huge. Yes. That's huge. Of course it is. And if you were in attendance at any of those games, where you sit in the press box, whether you're sitting in the stands, the electricity in the place uh, was unmistakable <laughs> and uh, really a, a surpassing kind of scene, with the likes of which we'd never seen up in Boulder. And uh, the fact remains that their game against Colorado State on a Saturday night remains the oh, highest oh, rated game yes. in the history of ESPN. Yes. No, that was amazing. And it was ran late. 
And, it, of course it did. Yeah. It was an overtime game, and, and people stayed with it. So next year, remember it's always going to be next year, but the 2024 year, my, my grandson for, just is enamored with all of this stuff. He's, you know, he's got Dave Logan. He's got Coach Prime. You know, and then he, for whatever reasons, he's a fan of the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> so I can't, you know, it's my grandson. He's, you know, but he does. He's a... Uh, and I said, who, we asked him who his favorite NFL team, the Bills. And he can talk to you like a like a guy about it. So transition from there to the Broncos. And what a wild ride that is. And we were talking, we weren't talking off air, but we've talked about this before. KOA, that's the voice of uh, CU Buffs and of the Denver Broncos, early on from my friends on the inside, said, thank God for Coach Prime being there because he was going to be the big, sure. the big ratings getter. And then it transitions over to the uh, the um, Broncos get a good run, and now now this. So what do we do with Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos? Well, we find out what happens tomorrow in Los Angeles. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, if the Broncos win the game tomorrow, they have a twenty seven percent chance to make the playoffs. If they lose the game, they have a six percent chance to make the playoffs. Wow. So it's wow. a pretty important game. And it means something to the Chargers, too, although the Chargers' chances are not as good as Denver's uh, at the moment of uh, making the playoffs. But you're right, Peter. Uh, as Colorado was collapsing, uh, at least competitively, uh, the Broncos won five games in a row during, during pretty much the same stretch of time. Yeah. And, of course, they lost last week, so now it's five out of six. But uh, the whole... <laughs> relationship between Sean Payton and Russell Wilson is just weird. I, I just, it's weird. Of course, Wilson is uniformly positive and Payton has been critical of Russell Wilson. And maybe in some cases with good reason, uh, Wilson in clutch time in close games has not been one of the better quarterbacks uh, in the NFL. In fact, uh, according to the metrics, he's been one of the worst, but, in quarters one through three this year, Wilson's been pretty damn good. Uh, as a game manager, he, he will never again be the star he was in Seattle. And I think even Wilson might admit to that. Uh, it, 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 that kind of Russell Wilson it, it can't function on a winning team anymore. Uh, but you have to trust your quarterback in the fourth quarter to make plays in close games. And I don't know that we have evidence that that trust exists between Sean Payton and Russell Wilson right now. And that, to me, is the major stumbling block uh, for Denver. Uh, Again, the Broncos don't have anyone on pace for a 1,000-yard receiving season and certainly not a 1,000-yard rushing season. So the talent level, especially on offense, is questionable. Uh, The big, speaking of the term transformation the big transformation with the Broncos as you know Pete has been on the defensive side of the ball where they went from giving up 10 touchdowns in Miami in week three to giving up only nine touchdowns in the next six games (laughs) I've never seen anything like it and I don't know that there has been anything like that kind of in-season transformation in the recent history of the National Football League there was a term when I was a kid growing up that we would use called front running they were front runners yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, you know, and that well, we, you know, and I've ne- the fans in the front range. 
Is it fair to call them front runners? I don't know that it's fair. I, I think <laughs> the fans were skeptical and yes. in some cases remain so. Yeah. Uh, as to how dramatically the Broncos have turned things around. Oh. Listen, only a fool would suggest that the Broncos aren't a better team this year uh, than uh, anything oh. we saw last year. Okay. Uh, of course, th- that that's obvious. Uh, but are they a playoff team? Or mm. are they just one of about, I don't know, a dozen teams in the National Football League that are just mediocre? Mm-hmm. Uh, they generally win the games they're supposed to win, and they lose the games they're supposed to lose. Uh, they're pretty much in every game. Uh, that's true with the Broncos now, even in losing last week. You know, they're down five with under a minute to go, first and goal at the eight-yard line. That sounds like great news, except the Broncos are just about the worst goal-to-go team offensively in the National Football League. Growing up... Um on the Pirates and Bobby Lane and the Steelers and, you know, sure. I, I mean, all that stuff. And, you know, great, the prize fighters that we loved. And we were front runners as kids. I mean, I know I was a front runner. And, uh, and I watched the fans and these, I mean, guys that I'd see in the gym that one day, how about them Broncos? And the next day, <laughs> like, they're, they're death on them. And I thought, well, that's front running, you know, and uh, I love it so. So, well, it, it's hard to judge six and six. Oh, you know that, uh, uh, you know, it, it, you can say, well, six and six when they won five out of six sounds better than six and six. If they had lost five out of six, oh, listen, remember Josh McDaniel oh, started six and oh in oh, 2009 oh. and finished eight and eight. And everybody thought it was awful. Yes. And certainly the finish was awful. But if he had started oh and six and finished eight and eight, there you go. People around here would say he's coach of the year. Front running. <laughs> All right, so. So, yeah. Go ahead. But the media is part of that, too, Peter. Oh, it my isn't God. just the fans. My God. It's like the business that we're in, <laughs> you get the bang out of it. Um, and it's just, it's just, by the way, it's really good to see DMAC doing well. I would wanted to say that about Darren. He's doing great, and that's that's the best, yep. too. He's He's my kid. I don't know. I mean, it's um, it's that time of the year. Will the Broncos be in the playoffs, do you think? I don't think so. I, I think even the head coach, I think he's made a decision for next year on Russell Wilson, whether he wants him back or not. And I do think he's pointing to 2024 as as a year in which they probably won't start one and five. That's the way he feels. And he feels he has a team now uh, that he can win with. Uh, I don't think he's sure about the quarterback. Uh, I don't think he's sure about some aspects of his offense. Although he's calling all the plays, it's kind of weird to hear him after games talking from kind of a distant point of view about the play calls and the play execution when he's the one calling the plays. Uh, It's like I'm coaching great, but they're messing up my brilliant designs. Uh, but I think next year is the year that he's looking at wow. more so than this year, because once you start one and five, your chances of making the playoffs are between one and 3% at that point. And, you know, now they have about a one in five chance of making the playoffs after winning five out of six. Uh, so they, they've made things interesting. Listen, people will be paying attention. Yeah to their December games. Now, in order to make the playoffs, Pete, they have to win. They have five games left. They have to win all four 
in the AFC. Yeah. Uh, if they can afford a loss, it'll be in Detroit next week because that's a non-conference game that won't affect tiebreakers. But even if they win four out of five, they're going to be involved in tiebreakers. And head-to-head with Cleveland, they're in good shape. Uh, but with Houston, they're in bad shape. With Buffalo, they're in good shape. Uh, but, uh, you know, tiebreakers are, are crazy things, but conference record has a lot to do with it, and the Broncos are only 3-5 and five in the AFC this year. So that's, the, that's why they can't afford to lose either game to the Chargers. They can't afford to lose to the Raiders. And, you know, you say they – uh, can't afford to lose to New England. Well, of course, everybody beats New England, except Pittsburgh didn't beat New England the other night. Yeah. Your Steelers, your Steelers, fell to the <laughs> New England oh, Patriots oh. and gave up twenty-one points yeah. in the process. I the, the the Steelers when they have a and we talk about a fan base, but I think there's something about Pittsburgh that Sandy Clough's here that. You know, the, you you can't go skiing. <laughs> There's nothing to do. No, and, I mean, no. it's oh, oh, overcast and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was made a joke that people in my family have not jumped off the roof because of the Steelers because nobody can get killed jumping off of a one-story building. <laughs> but they're, yeah. But they're, yeah. I mean, they, you know, living and dying. And uh, it was, it was, um, I think Dave Logan said it, and I think Jim Turner said it, you ain't seen nothing. So you see a New York football fan when he was playing for the Jets, and he said, they make these guys look like a day at the beach. Anyhow, have a, I, I know we'll talk, but if not, have a great holiday. I love you. Thanks for doing this. we got to get the hitman awake, pull him out. But, uh, Sandy, thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for a longtime friendship, and thank you for doing today. So Thanks, Pete. Right back at you. Be safe. Appreciate thank you. it. All right. Now, we got open lines, 303-696-1971. Anything on that Dalton book, we got some text on it. And then I asked this question, is the, the world is turning on Israel. I mean, you can see it. Why? 303-696-1971 or whatever you want to do is open lines. My friend David Ellis, we were texting this morning. You heard me tell you about taking valuables you have to David Ellis Jewelers to get a fortune in cash and secure an appraisal from David from all the valuables that you have tucked away in your home. This is gift-giving. See David. It's true. I'll share you all the reasons to see David. Just in case you don't have a Rolex, rare coins, or a silver tea set. See David for all the most meaningful gift-giving occasions that you have. Christmas, holidays, it's here. David Ellis Jewelers is the right item, just the right price for special people. And that, of course, means the most to you. Antique watches, emerald pennants, gold necklaces, diamond rings, this trusted jeweler, David Ellis, been buying precious metals and antiques in Colorado for decades. Dazzling cases filled with hundreds of new and used pieces for your loved ones to cherish. Visit David Ellis and see for yourself he's there as we speak. The Black Awning on the corner of 3rd and Clayton and Cherry Creek. Walk in, see David. David Ellis, jewelry.com. Uh, it's E-L-L-I-S, david.com. Or call him. 303-322-8779. Tell them I sent you. David Ellis, seven days, again, six days a week. Third and Clayton in Cherry Creek. Black awning on the building. David Ellis in Cherry Creek. 26 after 11. Morning, everybody. Peter Boyle's on the air everywhere. Lines with jams. Thank, thank you for doing this. Saturday weather, clearing skies, but it's going to be 35 for high, 15 tonight. 
Tomorrow, 48 degrees. Ski resorts are experiencing better snow. Things are rolling. Make it the perfect time to consider taking your skis and boards for a tune, maybe even getting new gear for the year. No, I have not skied yet. I'm good to go. I just can't. But time, we, we'll break this out. My kids and I are talking about it. we got to get on and get up. So the perfect winter sports equipment. Head over to, again, John Marriott's place, Larson Ski and Sport. Meet Paul. Meet everybody. They're, uh, again, John's son, Jack, located south of I-70 on Kipling. So whether you're looking to rent or buy equipment, Larson's has you covered. Dedicated to providing you with the best skiing experience possible, the convenience of Larson's is unbeatable. You're on the way up, on the way down. There they are. Perfect stop on your way up the mountain or your way home. You get off on your westbound on I-70. You get off on the Kipling exit. Come down the ramp. Make a left. Go back. There's a tunnel right under I-70. You come out on the other side. Look to your right. You see the Crab Shack. Right next to the Crab Shack on the right, on the west side, a big wooden building. That's that's Larson. Seven days a week, Larson Ski and Sport. John, Paul, all the guys at Larson's, absolute experts at everything you need. Uh, John, John's son, Jack, took me to school, really, on ski boots. And stop in today and get stuff tuned, too. You have a problem with something, get it tuned, get it fixed. All the new equipment, but he is the man. Stop in today. It's small enough, and yet it's big enough. You get individual treatment from people that know what they're doing. Larson Ski and Sport, south of I-70 on Kipling, 303-423-0654, 303-423-0654, Larson Sport. All right, let's go to Ted. Ted, I know you waited. Good morning. Thanks for calling the show. Hey, Pete. Hey, man. Uh, my uh, great uncle is buried within about 20 feet of the Daltons. <laughs> what, is, what a story. He was a, he was, and he was a lawyer in um, in, in Coffeeville, a uh, Civil War veteran, uh, captain, uh, wounded, um, got some some medals, uh, went out there. Uh, but uh, it hasn't passed notice that uh, the lawyers and the bank robbers are buried in the same yeah. section. You know, you, you would like this. I mean, first of all, I love how this guy writes, and I've read two of his books, and um, and this one's really good. It's called Entitled to Daltons. But I didn't realize how significant they were because we're always Frank and Jesse or the, the Youngers. Or, oh, yeah. But it's really the Daltons carry on the tradition way after these guys have quit or in jail or dead. Well, you know, there was so much uh, uh, conflict in that area after the Civil War. Yes. Um, there was a, there was a, uh, a big settlement uh, with the Osage Indians where – um, you know, the government kind of mm-hmm. bought them out and moved them to Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, where they became the richest nation in the world <laughs> for a right. while. That's right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, the, um, uh, but it was, uh, I heard, you know, I'm 83. Wow. Uh, I've heard the stories about Coffeeville and, you know, when the family settled there. And, and my uncle Ed was, uh, uh, was a witness to it. Uh, I, see, it was in that town when I, it happened. I, I, and how limited my knowledge is, but I thought after Northfield, Minnesota, that, and again, there's a whole book, of, there's a bunch of books about Northfield, and there's one book entitled The Last Battle of the Civil War, or words to that effect, that they believed that this general owned the bank, and the general had a lot to do with whatever happened to them, so a guy named Clell Miller sells them on going. And they go to Coffeeville, or excuse me, they they go to Northfield, and everybody knows they're coming. 
And it's also a great argument for the Second Amendment is coffee is um, Northfield. And guys were really they, they were running into the um, hardware store and grabbing guns and come out and shooting shooting Jan, uh, Jesse and Frank and uh, Coleman Younger, who's one of my favorites, Cole Younger. And then Cole Younger ends up on the Chautauqua uh, with Frank James, and they they go around giving talks about why not to you know don't do what I did, but everybody t- turns out just to see them because that's sure. who, that's who they are. Yeah, everybody's thinking. Well, maybe I could do a little better at it than they did. Absolutely. You know? And again, so when do outlaws become gangsters? You you seem to be pretty tuned into this. Um, it's a great question. I I, w- I would I would say really until the maybe the sixties or seventies. Well, but you know, um, he asked the you question. Know, yeah. Um, I mean, because I I think. Uh, a lot of the gangsters in the 20s and 30s, um, you know, profited from prohibition. Oh. Were were local. Uh, and and the, there's a there was a family in Denver uh, who was uh, uh, probably one of the larger contributors to the Catholic Church. Um, the Smalldones. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Of course, and, and I hear you know who knows that, those stories. Uh, Frank DeAngelis. Tom Tancredo and Gary Dufranch, they all grew up in North Denver. They're old. They're not as old as us, but they're old guys. And they all grew up with the stories. And then the Denver cops have stories. Um, and then um, Dick Kreck wrote a book about them. But there's there's still this, you know, robbing banks and getting on trains and robbing trains. And I'm sure that when you were a 14-year-old kid in Ohio reading that stuff, that had to capture every bit of your imagination and go, oh, wow. Listen, you're a great call, Ted. I appreciate it. Hang on. Be safe. Hey, listen, good to talk to you. I'm glad, glad you're back. Pete. You're very kind. Thank you. All right. Hey, Mike, you're on a radio show. Good morning. Thank you. Hi, Peter. Hey, um, question for you. Um, have you heard of a book? I've not read the, the Dalton Gang book that you uh, kind of profiled today, mm-hmm. but um, I think you might have turned me on to this book years ago. It's Jesse James. It's a biography, The Last Rebel of the yes, Civil War. Yes, I did. T.J. Styles. Yes, I know the book, and yes, he's on the show, and I hope I sold you that book or helped you get it and read it. Yes. Oh, my Oh my gosh. Uh, and I'm, I'm holding it right now. I You know, I bought it, and... But it led to, well, a great, great book. And T.J. Styles, uh, I think, yes. was um, his hometown was Northfield. Oh, no, he went that's, to Carleton that, College. Yeah, yeah, that's you're exactly right. And there's there's been so many books written about. It. And the one, the other one was the one that was the last battle of the Civil War was was Northfield. Well, I from that book, I mean, I learned more about first of all the the guerrillas. The guerrilla activity that went on in Missouri was every bit as brutal as anything that went on in the Middle East or is going on in the Middle East now. I mean, they raped, pillaged, and mm-hmm. tor- uh, tortured each other tremendously. I I learned I, – I made a family connection as a result of that book. My great-great-grandfather was killed in the Battle of Centralia, wow. Missouri. Wow. And that was uh, Bloody Bill Anderson. His mm-hmm. gang, Jesse and Frank, That's were right. riding with him yeah. during that battle. It's all true. All and true. Um, it's crazy, but my great-great-grandfather had two kids. They're obviously orphaned because uh, – and when uh, Jesse was killed in uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, 1882, mm-hmm. something like that, 
they were both there. Um, yeah, I mean, they didn't see it, obviously, but they were living in St. Joseph, um, you know, as young young men, oh, yeah. 18, 20 year olds. Sure. I mean, um, I, anyways, that book was tremendous. Well, so I really stuff, appreciate that. Oh, any of this stuff, because, you know, we're all read about it. And we were kids and had a version of it. And um, and it isn't until people really start to look at, for instance, Jesse James. I always thought. When I'm a kid, again, growing up, you know, Jesse James is probably a cool guy. He's robbing banks and rob, but he was really a Robin Hood character. None of that's true, but he was also a psychotic murderer. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, or, or Bonnie Parker. And again, remember the movie Bonnie and Clyde that they had, you know, gotten all this attention for that film, how wonderful it was, and they were killed in the car. She's a she's bad. I mean, she murdered people for for probably, if not any reason at all. Bonnie Parker, and they would go back uh, to their families in Texas, and they would meet them and, you know, bring them food and everything. I mean, it was a another world, I think. And yeah, yeah. do you make? Here's my uh, final question to you: Bonnie and Clyde are they outlaws? Or are they gangsters? Or are they bank? Who are they? <laughs> well, uh, I consider them gangsters, but I the, the definition from outlaw to gangster changed in mm-hmm. my mind. Yeah. This is my opinion. Uh, when America moved, started moving from the farms and transitioned from a rural-dominated you know, population so. to an urban, well, that's um, and that was in the twenties or so, I yeah, believe. That that's the Jackson first Turner. Time, the first, okay, yeah, yeah, William Jackson Turner. Yeah. Anyways, um, so you know, outlaws were when we were more of a rural country, okay. and uh, gangsters when we're urban. I real quick, I. Bob Lee, my old mentor, and I, we did a radio show in the Federal Institution on Kipling. And um, I met a bank robber. And I won't use it. I know his name. He's gone now. He had some family here. He was down for the third time on banks. And it's called the big bitch, habitual criminal. And he was, that was it. He wasn't coming out. He was doing, he was an habitual criminal when he was a bank robber. I had lunch with him. We ended up, you know, I, I sent him some books and um, I said, tell me about it, because at the time, David Allen Coe had a thong, song called Out It's Love, Robin Banks, you know, and he and Bob and I were right in the middle of that country music explosion that was outlaw, and there was, you know, David Allen Coe, and God, the whole bunch of Johnny Paycheck, and they were always talking about sticking stuff up. So I said, tell me about Robin Banks. I'm sitting with the guy. He said, I'll tell you about Robin Banks. He said... You take everything that excites you in your life. He went down sex, cars, you know, the whole list of things. He said, he said, roll them all into one. And that's how I feel when I walk in a bank. And, I, and I've, wow. ca- I've carried that around with me. Wow. You know, he said that. He said, uh, he said um, what, you know, you take all of those emotions and beautiful women, you know, everything, roll it into one. He said, that's how I feel when I walk into a bank. I said, can't beat that. Well, there are thrill seekers out oh, there that boy. are wired that way, Ooh. and uh, apparently that was uh, that a, was his thing then. And you know, after you get caught once, and then the second time, knowing if they catch you again, it was a federal habitual habitual criminal because that's a federal institution. He was down. He was there for life, and he was like, uh, you know, sitting talking to me and you. <laughs> You're a bank robber. <laughs> God, uh, yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. You take, Anyways. take care of yourself. You, you bet. Take care. Thank you. All right. Um, here's one. And Kenny Dealer and I rode our motorcycles. Arvada Army Navy surplus. It's an old town Arvada, 
and it's got you covered this Christmas. Beyond Army Surplus, they boost all the selection of Levi's and Carhartts, a wide array of knives, durable hiking and work boots, plus all your camping and outdoor needs, a trusted, they've been there for, well, I actually talked to the founder, they've been there since 84, Steve and his dad, actually, and the staff, incredibly knowledgeable, will assist you in finding the perfect gift for the holidays and the gear for your next holiday adventure. Just, I love those stories. Just wander through Arvada Army Navy Surplus. They have a, their mission's clear, provides you with a vast selection of high-quality gear, prices that won't empty your wallet. Mention the morning show or mention 710K in U.S. You get a customized military dog tag. The store is so many cool things to, to, for you to check out. You'll, you'll never want to leave once you step foot in Arvada Army Navy Surplus. For real, if you got kids and stuff, just bomb in. Uh, historical military gear they have on display, but the kids and grandkids and everybody, aisle after aisle after aisle, drop by and see in Old Town Arvada. It's easy to find. Check them out. The Army, it's called ArvadaSurplus.com, but it's what it is. ArvadaSurplus.com, Old Town Arvada. You will be glad you did. One of my many theme songs, Blue Oyster Cult. You're cranking across Wyoming at about a buck ten, going to Sturgis. Play that in the background. Don't fear the Reaper. Morning, everybody. 710 KNUS Denver's talk station. 35 will be the high and 48 tomorrow. We go to the phones again. And it's been a great morning. I really appreciate the show. Hey, Ralph, you're on a radio show. Good morning and thank you. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Every time I listen to you, I learn several things. Me too. Uh, <laughs> Me like, too. <laughs> well, like the, like the held, exactly. Your listeners are fantastic. I mean, that last caller with the connection between the going from rural to urban in the United States. With Jackson Turner, that yes. was a tremendous thing. Well, Jackson Turner, I learned. Yeah, Jackson Turner turns up in so much. I'm Henry Jackson Turner came up with a theme. It was called. It was. It was called. Uh, it was destiny, and it was who no. we, who we were. It was called manifest destiny, and and it, and it. Some of it's really brilliant. Some of it can really make certain people mad. But <laughs> as he said, the minute Arizona becomes a state. A year later, we overthrow Queen Kamehameha. We're still no, no. we're moving. Lily Kalani. Yeah, yeah, we're moving. We're moving. Yeah, yeah. It's the end of the Kamehameha dynasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. What I was what I was fascinated by is I'm from Springfield, Missouri, and so what you're talking about is sort of local affairs. I guess I'm a hillbilly. I had moonshine before mm-hmm. I had Scott, and the concept that we tend to forget is what those people in that area knew from the Civil War, and you put your finger right on it. What's going on in Israel is, if anything, less violent, less deadly, less terroristic than what went on uh, along that Kansas, you know, Kansas Missouri border. I, you know, I don't know if you can compare and contrast horrible things. I, I often wonder about that. Um, you know, and, and I'm reading this, and it's my favorite book to read that I'm not getting back to it enough, but it's about the trials that took place in Japan um, yes. after after the end of the Second World War, but it really spends most of the book about... You know, we were firebombing these these cities that were really made out of wooden paper, 
And we were burning babies. This is the United States of America. We were burning old ladies and old men and women and children. And LeMay actually says, you know, I could be, he said, you know, I could very easily be a war criminal. And yet, you know, one of the reasons, according to <laughs> according to what I'm reading, Hiroshima was one of the last unburned. Um, and they were considering the third bomb that they were going to do Tokyo with. And, you know, and, and it was unconditional surrender. We're going to beat and burn them to the ground. And they they had to. They had to. I'm not. May I'm, I do a Sure. Go ahead. Are you I want to do a segue from the opposite. I'm a graduate of the Air Force Academy. I'm an acolyte of oh. LeMay. Okay. I'm not a spit and polish like he made SAC. I never would have made it there. But I totally understand and agree with what was done. And here's the reason. Personal. I had an uncle who earned the Bronze Star in Germany the hard way, taking out German pillboxes. Uh, his lieutenant surrendered him in the Battle of the Bulge. And after he uh, got out of a German prison camp, he was being fattened up oh, yeah. to lead the first leg sure. of the invasion of the home islands no, of Japan. I, listen, I'm on your side here with this argument. I'm in favor of using the weapon. I really am. I think exactly. save lives. And, Number one, it saved Japanese lives. It saved American lives. No, I mean, I, and what, I, I'm not... And what I'm, we don't... Go ahead. Not, well, I'm, I'm not critical of the use of it. It's like that's what they had when people talk about flooding tunnels and this stuff in Gaza. When LeMay and Tui Spots and all these guys, when they sit down and they have George Marshall to bounce it off and uh, the bombing stuff MacArthur knows about, he doesn't know about the atomic bomb, but they know that they have to do it. They, Okinawa has been so intense and horrible in Tarawa, and they knew they knew, look, they, they had the women and the kids geared up to, to fight these guys, and they weren't even going to be on the mainland, they thought, until late 46, early 47. They had to do it. Right. And no, I'm on right. your side. That was the reason that the bomb was dropped. And they didn't even give up after two. No. Basically, what happened, well, let me add just a little bit of a gloss on that. We don't show people what war is really like. We don't show people the result of firebombing on Tokyo Bay, which is basically a raft of charred bodies bound together by being incinerated, floating up and down in the water. Oh, absolutely. And the thing was, what LeMay's comment made before the bombing started of the firebombing on Tokyo after the first one, we will bomb and burn them until they surrender. They knew it. If we bomb and burn enough, they'll give up. That's exactly what, they, what happened, they believed, yes. Well, and what happened was the Japanese military wanted to keep fighting. Oh. They had a conference in, in Tokyo with the emperor, and Hirohito is not supposed to talk under Japanese tradition, Bushido tradition. Sure. He's supposed to listen, and yeah. they are the decision makers. Mm-hmm. He speaks. The emperor speaks. And what he says is, I do not want to preside over the extermination of the Yamato people. Uh, the, uh, that's Japanese right. They're Yamatos. That's right. Wait, the, I, and, I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Go, go. Well, we're getting up on time. What I, I didn't, what I didn't realize until this book is that was a record. I think I mentioned this before. He cuts a record. Uh, I always thought that the emperor spoke live. No. He had, no. He had cut a record. 
And the night before they played it, there was an attempted palace coup, and they were hunting for the record, these young military officers, because yeah. they were going to die. I mean, they, they were simply going to die. And they hit them. They hid the record with um, the women, with the, with the courtesans. They, that's where they mm-hmm. hid the record. Next day, they dropped the needle, and there he is, and he says, I quit. In the meantime, LeMay has called Wendover and said, send the next. I always thought there was only two bombs. There was a third bomb. They said, bring it. We're going to need it. And that's when they start talking about, we'll put this puppy, uh, this next one goes on Tokyo, and we'll, 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 we'll kill the emperor. And, um, yeah. and the trials, but you got it, because you're really smart. I, I, I love you calling the shows. I've listened to you. This, this book opens up some windows that I, I never saw through. What, what, what's the book? It's entitled um, Trials in Tokyo, or Judgment in Tokyo, okay. one of the two. I don't know book titles. But I'll get this guy on a show. And he's, they really have it, because uh, uh, th- those trials were so much different than Nuremberg. And they, you know, they, like, you know, Yoshida stood trial and Tojo stood trial, but th- it wasn't this blanket of finding everybody. And they didn't go through looking for the good, like they did, you know, the, the good German, so-called good German. No. And the, the Japanese were, once the emperor said no, that was it. But it's just... I mean, it, and it's hard to believe because we listen to people so upset now about a war that's taking place in the Middle East. Uh, how many people? Stalin was losing 10,000 men a day. Ten, and mm-hmm. that's, ten, I mean, and, and, and they're, they're sitting at Yalta. You said, I'm 10,000. And, they're, and they're, they're, yeah, they're at Yalta talking about 10,000. He's losing. The, the Red Army's 10,000 10, men a day. My God. I got to take a turn. Um, what, do you, what do you do now? Are you are you uh, retired? Are you still working? Oh yeah, no, no, I retired long ago. Ah. Long ago. <laughs> no, I, I, how, how shall I say? I I, I uh, was able to. Well, between my partners and me, I ended up resigning from my law firm when I was fifty. And then I, uh, how shall I say, I did what I always wanted to do, which was find a library and go sit in there it. There you go. I, I can. What can really, I say? I get to do something. Oh, I do have one, one comment. Real sure. Quick comment. Quick one. You know, you were talking about uh, the degrees that people get. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually have an honest set of degrees. I majored in military history. All right. I majored in political science. Okay. And I majored in international affairs. All right. On all three, the Air Force Academy has the honor code, and so they were very honest. They gave me a BS. Oh. each one of those three areas. <laughs> it would have not happened at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> I was there, but never mind. We'll go into that later. Thank you, sir. That all right. Awesome. That also should be a BS. Take care. Thank you. Danny Kaplis. Dan's believed to be the only attorney in Colorado history to win five straight multi-million dollar jury verdicts in motor vehicle crash cases. And he, I say this all the time, what he did for my family was the best. He won the largest truck crash jury verdict in Colorado history. The firm's history of seven- and eight-figure settlements and verdicts speak for themselves. It's a firm where good people from all walks of life, without regard to ability to pay, get the best legal representation. Dan Kaplis is the man. And talk is cheap, as we all know. Whiskey is expensive, and results matter. That's why it's Kaplis. The firm would be happy to share with you its track record, but if you're in a tight, you're running a jam, the firm would be happy to share with you its track record of outstanding jury verdicts and court settlements. And these guys, they pony up, man. 
Danny believes that who you hire says so much about you and everybody involved. So if you're in a jam and a tight, you just need a question answered, 303 770 555 303-770-5551, 303-770-5551. Go to the web. Danny's to answering a bunch of them. What was the name of the Buffalino book? Uh, it is entitled The Life We Have Chosen. It's about Russell Buffalino, but it's really about uh, his adopted son, Russell Buffalino's adopted son. Also, a bunch of email more or text messaging. What's the number of the uh, hyperbaric guy? It's 303-353-9623. That is it. It's been a fun show. Thank you, Lou. You did it work. Everybody, thanks for listening. I'll be back here next week. Be safe. Thank you. 710-KNUS. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.